Hey bosses, before we kick off this episode, let me tell you about our sponsor, Nom Nom. Your pet's a member of the family, so don't feed them like they're in the doghouse. Give them Nom Nom. Nom Nom delivers fresh dog food with every portion, personalized to your dog's needs, so you can bring out their best. Nom Nom is made with real, whole food you can see and recognize without any additives or fillers that contribute to bloating and low energy. That's because Nom Nom uses the latest science and insights to make real, good food for dogs. Their nutrient-packed recipes are crafted by board-certified veterinarian nutritionists made fresh and ship-free to your door. In fact, Nom Nom's already delivered over 40 million meals to good dogs like yours, inspiring millions of clean bowls and tail wags. And Nom Nom sent me a sample pack. I'm going to tell you all about it coming up during the break in the show. Seriously, this stuff looks so good. I almost ate it myself. If you want to check out Nom Nom for yourself, you should go right now to get 50 50% off a no-risk two-week trial when you go to trynom.com slash iLab. That's try, T-R-Y, nom, N-O-M, dot com slash I-L-A-B. T-R-Y-N-O-M dot com slash I-L-A-B. It's trynom.com slash iLab. All right, let's kick off this episode of Invest Like a Boss. Welcome to the Invest Like a Boss podcast. I'm Sam Marks. I'm Derek Sparts. And I'm Johnny FD. We're self-made entrepreneurs who invest our own money and use modern technology to invest like a boss. Join us each week for exclusive interviews with our network of modern investors, business owners, and multimillionaires to discover new ways to invest our hard-earned cash. All right, all right. Welcome back, bosses. I got a fresh location for you for this episode. Derek, I see that glossy background. It always brings me comfort when we're recording because I know at least one of us are going to have good audio. <laughs> Welcome back, bosses. We got a fun episode. This week, we're talking about Ponzi schemes. Ponzi schemes. Now, this is something that Sam and I got really interested in when we watched the Madoff series. It's called Monster of Wall Street. It's on Netflix. Highly suggest you check it out. I think it's like three hour long episodes or so, but it's like you just want to rail like all through them right away. You're like, we've heard the story and we know what happens, but you still want to watch it. So good. And actually, although we've all heard the story and I don't think there's any real big surprises, there's a couple in there, but man, is that, that is that a captivating series on Netflix. Very well put together. Obviously, some big hitters in terms of, you know, financial crimes analysts and people that were really on the inside of the deal on both sides, both on the investigation side, but also people that were working like the right hand man of Madoff. And I didn't even know that Madoff died. That was kind of like news to me. <laughs> Sam, Sam, Sam hits me up and he goes, hey, uh, you think we could get Madoff on from prison? I was like, unless you can raise him <laughs> from the dead. <laughs> <laughs> So if you guys haven't watched that, put that high on your to-do list because it's just a badass. Is it? A, it's a docu series, pretty much, and yeah, it's amazing. Like I think I got through it all like three consecutive days. I wish it was longer, but super engaging. It was funny we were watching it at the exact same time because Sam hits me up. He's like, "You watching this Madoff thing?" I was like, "I just finished the first episode. You gotta watch it." So, yeah. yeah, and I, I, timing wise, I'm not sure what spawned us. I think someone like mentioned it, and I was like, oh, "I gotta, I gotta jump into that and watch it." But it was when this whole tech implodes. I, I watched it maybe two. Two or three months ago it was like kind of the bottom of the tech implosion and there started to be a lot of rattling in some of the investments that we're in and we're like you know everything's on high alert right your, yeah. your spidey sense is kind of going off like looking around at, at everything uh there's the bank failures and stuff and it, it just is a reminder that we have to be diligent and now more than ever you want to be diversified even in your banks 
but I think after after watching this, Derek and I got really excited about what Ponzi schemes are, the history there. And we also started reaching out to potential guests, which Derek, you can tease one of the uh, the guests that we're going to have on coming up. So we'll have a multiple multiple episodes on this topic because it's 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 worth it. Yeah. So originally, um, we're going to talk about all things made off uh, towards the end of this episode. So stay tuned for that. But I originally wanted to book someone that was personally involved with made off. And everywhere I went, it was either these people just disappeared off the face of the earth. They're off the grid. <laughs> I mean, I had like credible like news sources telling me like they're just they're gone. They live in the woods somewhere in like a cabin, like no Facebook, no in nothing. They're just done. And then the people that I actually did get to reach, uh, the ones that got back to me said, I have zero interest in talking to the media. I've said my story. I'm done. I don't ever want to talk about this again. So I found that <laughs> very interesting. So unfortunately, I was not able to get someone directly involved in the Madoff scandal, but we have an advisor to the FBI and a uh, high level university professor from New York who uh, knows about the Madoff case and a ton of all these other Ponzi schemes that we're going to be talking to on the next episode. He'll help you identify, you know, what is a Ponzi scheme, how to find one, um, what to do if you're involved in one. Because like Sam said, when the market starts to go sideways, that's when things start to fall apart. You'll notice a common theme in all these Ponzi scenes we're going to talk about is when things were going well in the economy, no one questioned it. Dude, I was just going to say that because reading through these, what we're going to bring to this episode, the top five Ponzi schemes of history, one thing you'll notice is when most of them went bust and or got, got found out, right? And that was what year, Derek? Uh, 2008, 2009, right around there yep. was the majority of yeah. these. <laughs> Stop drinking the Kool-Aid, people. All right, so let's go into what an actual Ponzi scheme is. We're going to talk a little bit about the history. We'll share with you guys the top five that we figured out thanks to ChatGBT. And also, spoiler alert, but stay tuned to the end of the episode. There was a news break today on an investment that I was personally in that looks like it's a Ponzi scheme of some form or fashion. If you're in some of the investments that we're in, don't lose your stomach just yet because I'm 99.99999% sure I'm the only one that's invested in this deal. Uh, so you're safe and I also got my money out, but we'll share more on that news at the end of the episode. So far, we're batting a thousand for Invest Like a Boss episodes that are Ponzi schemes, but not Ponzi schemes. The not sorry, not, <laughs> not, not Ponzi schemes. Okay. Thanks for the correction, Sam. That could have been a really bad soundbite. I'm going to edit that out. Yeah. <laughs> all right, crack on, Derek. What? Yeah, take us through what you you came up with a Ponzi scheme definition based, I think, off like the SEC, and I came up with one based on what Chap GBT says. So why don't we share both? Well, let's start. Yeah, directly from the SEC is what they claim a Ponzi scheme is. It says. Ponzi schemes uh, use money from new investors to pay earlier investors and may steal some of that money for themselves with little or no legitimate earnings. Ponzi schemes require a constant flow of new money to survive. When it becomes hard to recruit new investors or when large numbers of existing investors cash out, these schemes tend to collapse. So essentially, they're just saying you need to keep feeding it and feeding it to get people who either want to cash out from new investors or from old investors to make it look like you're generating returns when in reality, there's really zero or very little returns on that investment. Yeah, that's pretty much what ChatGPT says. I'll just throw in that the scheme is named after Charles Ponzi, who became notorious for using the scheme in the early 20th century. We'll have more to talk about Charles Ponzi because he was one of the fifth, uh, the five biggest Ponzi schemes of all time and the original Ponzi scheme, at least uh, as defined by the SEC. And the only other thing that ChatGPT says I think is worthwhile 
is that often these Ponzi schemes start off with really high investment returns. And that's obvious to attract new money to get people that are in the investment in the scheme to start talking about it and socializing it with their friends and peers, which brings in new money and so on. So it goes until it doesn't go. Well, let's kick it off. Number five is Charles Ponzi. I mean, we wouldn't have the Ponzi scheme without Ponzi, or we probably would have had some other guy, but <laughs> he was essentially the originator that everyone refers to. Grew up in Italy and he found kind of a scheme that, you know, what we've talked about this scheme essentially on iLab is a foreign exchange taking one country's currency into another and generating more money off that. That's how he got the idea to do the Ponzi scheme. No way. That was he was doing that in the ninth, early 1900s. Yeah. So he found out that, you know, if I exchange one country's currency into another, I can get a tiny fraction of money off that. And he would share this idea with people and people would be like, oh, that sounds amazing. But, you know, in the 20s, how hard was it to travel to another country? It would have been like impossible. You know, we didn't have the Internet. You couldn't do digital yeah. currency, anything like that. And you had to what? fly or not fly. You couldn't fly <laughs> a train or a boat or however you had to do it. So essentially he told everybody about this idea to do this. And they're like, oh, that sounds amazing. And then in return, he would ask people for money, but he'd never actually exchanged the money or inflated the actual returns that he was receiving on these funds. Yeah. And in the 1900s goes without saying there's no computers, no internet. So there's very little transparency. And I doubt Mr. Ponzi was mailing everyone a monthly letter <laughs> with all the transactional history. Yeah. I mean, back then it must have literally just been like you give them money and then you hope whenever you're able to post him a letter and say, hey, I want my money back uh, a few years down the road that he sends you more money than you had. But even then, was was there even telephones back then? Like, how would you uh, even Very, very early. But yeah, I mean, you probably would have had to pay it. How would you call someone in another country? I don't even know how you do that. Yeah. <laughs> I think back then it was like pretty much you bought real estate or you put your money in a bank and got interest, or you you own stock certificates. But there wasn't a lot of movement of money. There wasn't a lot of transparency in what you had. And you could have made up any exchange rate. I would have just believed you. Oh, okay, one US dollar is equivalent to 10 Mexican pesos. Yeah. Okay, sounds yeah, yeah, good. Exactly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there really wasn't much of like a live market for things back then. Surprisingly, given all that, that of the top five Ponzi schemes of all time. There wasn't so many more that kind of came in in the early 1900s. But, you know, as you see, as we move down the line, like the deals got bigger and bigger because there's more money in the market, more liquidity, et cetera. So more opportunity to raise money. I mean, you could only reach so many people back then, you know, for the whole reasons we were just saying, you know, there wasn't the internet phones barely, you know, maybe a newspaper ad, I don't know. But beyond that, it would have been hard to get all these people. And just the fact that there's so much more wealth in the world today, too. Yeah. Yeah. So Mr. Ponzi took what seems like a pretty trivial amount of money, but back then would have been a lot of money. 15 million is what he defrauded investors with in the early 1900s, which I wonder what happened to Mr. Ponzi. Did he did he just kind of hide tail and go live in the in the Bahamas somewhere? Or do, do we have any information on that? I Oh, here we go. He was deported from the United States and he died nearly broke, but all the way till January 1949, he hung on another 20 years and guess where he ended up, Sam? South America. Oh, man. Brazil. South America is just loaded with fraudsters, Nazis. Well, it's after World War II, too. Interesting. Yeah, that was <laughs> yeah. kind of the, the place to go if you wanted to get 
he went out there and partied with all these ex Nazis. Yeah, yeah, he's like, all right, I did some crappy stuff, but nothing as bad as the Nazis, so they'll let me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they, they were, they're not looking for me down here, right? <laughs> so I did the actual math though on what uh, 15 million converts to in today's money. And it was mm. like $235 million. Damn, you can live really good in Brazil with that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so that one, that one's cool. But, it, you know, it's 100 years ago. And let's talk about some ones that we've actually heard of and may have even affected some of our listeners. So number four on the list, one that I'm sure everyone has heard of, but might not know the inside scoop on. This was major, major news when I was a kid and didn't know much about finance but certainly remember my dad talking about it at dinner and all the news flashes. That is Enron. What do you know about Enron, Mr. D? So we're we're both about the same age, Sam. So I think we were both in high school and it's happening. So I remember this being like a thing and I was like, I don't know what any of this means. It's a energy company and they went to zero. Who cares? <laughs> it affected a lot of people. This is maybe not traditional in, in a Ponzi scheme sense that you would think about. But Sam, I'm going to send you this picture I found, this graph, and I will give it to our listeners. Here it is. So what Enron did is creative accounting, but it wasn't... This is the the weird part is it wasn't totally illegal. Mm -hmm. They did uh, a practice MTM which is called a mark-to-market accounting. So essentially what they would do is MTM allows you to provide a, real, a realistic appraisal of an institution or company's current financial situation and its legitimate and a widely used practice. However, in some cases, it can be manipulated. So... MTM value is not based on an actual cost, but what is considered a fair value. So essentially, Enron would build like a power plant mm -hmm. and they would say this power plant is worth $1 billion, but the plant might not have even generated any electricity yet. So mm -hmm. it could still be in the building process. So in, what they would say is we're appraising this at this value, even though it has generated like zero income. So they had a lot of assets that they would hyperinflate the actual value to make it look like they were generating way more revenue. Yeah. Sam, did you look at that chart I sent you? Yeah, that's crazy. The chart that Derek sent me, we'll post it in the show notes, basically shows that Enron's 2000 reported revenue compared to the biggest companies at that time, or at least the biggest, yeah, let's say Microsoft, Dell, Chevron, Texaco, Goldman Sachs, the revenue, the reported revenue was like more than double four times. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Four times. Let's just say like four times, uh, three times as big as Microsoft at the time and Dell computer. I, I remember some of the discussions about Enron and like no one really kind of knew what they were doing, but everyone thought they were so smart. It was like, this is this the smartest company. It's, it's almost like it's almost like AI to a degree now where people don't really understand how it works. And until chat GBT, people couldn't really see that many real life applications, but everyone knew it was like this just monster to be. And Enron, I remember everyone's just saying they're the smart, they're just the smartest guys around. In fact, I think there's a documentary called They're the Smartest Guys in the Room or The Smartest Guys in the Room. Yeah, I think that was it. So they all, they did a lot of crazy, like it, essentially innovative stuff at the time. They, they traded energy credits and it was during this like, you know, the, the dot-com boom. So everything was like, this isn't your, you know, your grandpa's utility company that just pumps out consistent dividends and, and does yeah. steady revenue. And I found this really interesting story that there's one company that no longer exists anymore, but I'm sure you've been to Sam, that was actually really key in Enron coming down. It was Blockbuster. Blockbuster was key in Enron coming down. Yes. So Blockbuster Video had this crazy idea that people would want to watch videos on demand on their TV instead of going to the actual store, mm -hmm. if that concept sounds familiar. <laughs> um, yeah. 
So they obviously it didn't work out. Netflix uh, crushed them in that business. And when they realized it wasn't going to work out, um, Enron had actually invested into that. And they did their creative accounting and said that, you know, that portion of the business was worth like multiple billions of dollars. And when it didn't work out, for Blockbuster. Blockbuster is reporting that, you know, they made zero revenue off that. Meanwhile, Enron says they have billions in revenue from a non-existent business. And that was kind of like the first puzzle that kind of caught the stock. Okay, I got it. I got it. So that basically started to shed light on the faulty accounting practices. Yeah, because they partnered with a company that was doing legitimate accounting. <laughs> this, this is just one of those things, like when when, when we, we talk about Madoff coming up and it's like, how it's so obvious, you know, and looking back at Enron, it was like one of the biggest publicly traded companies at the time. How is there not so many sets of eyes on their accounting practice? It's like the number one thing that that is required as like a public company is like you have to have your your financials audited, right? Yeah, we're supposed to feel safe when we hear about these investments. They go, oh, the SEC has checked us out this many times and they do this every six months, every three months. And yeah, someone's coming in and calling us. And it's like, are they though? Because we've seen multiple stories where they just check a box and they go, oh, that's done. On to the next one. It's, uh, it's, it's really um, like you just sit here and scratch your head about how these things were missed but i don't know it's it, it's it's shocking it's shocking when enron went bust and it's not like chat gbt doesn't seem to be sure if, if enron was an actual ponzi scheme but i think that's a part of the narrative that everyone will see is like the definition of ponzi is pretty exact but then the categorization of these different schemes like enron's a little flaky it's like it doesn't purely fit into a Ponzi scheme. But in a sense, it was because it was basically a fraudulent company, even though they had some legitimate business, they were they were scammers, they were fraud, mm -hmm. they were fraudsters, and they were they were pumping up the stock price. So they're bringing in new investor new capital, and then existing investors or early investors were making tons of money and getting their money out and all the new money in got ultimately wiped out because investors lost billions of dollars when Enron imploded. So a lot of early investors made a lot of money and then the uh, the new money in basically got wiped out. And in the meantime, all the executives are getting giant bonuses because it looks like the company is just doing amazing. So they're making millions and millions of dollars just off their potential performance of the stock because everyone thinks the company is just crushing it. Meanwhile, you know, those that bonus money is just coming directly off investors. All right. So that was Enron, obviously a big name in the group. Let's move into one a little bit less known, but higher on the list at number three and one that Derek has a personal story about Tom Petter's Ponzi scheme. Let's take a quick break and we'll come back with that. This week's sponsor of Invest Like a Boss is Nom Nom. Now, I don't have a dog yet. I'm in the market very soon, I hope. But I asked Nom Nom to send me some of this dog food so I could check it out for myself. And I'm in Los Angeles. Dogs get treated way better than humans here. So I figured if dog owners would be open to trying Nom Nom here, they're open to trying it anywhere. Well, everyone I gave Nom Nom to loved it. It's real food. You can actually see 
every single ingredient in there. They don't use any additives or fillers, and that means less bloating, more energy, and a happier dog overall. It's super easy to get started with Nom Nom. You just go to their website, you take a quick quiz, and they create a diet specifically catered to your dog. Nom Nom also comes with a money-back guarantee. If your dog doesn't love it within 30 days, Nom Nom will refund your first order. And even better, we got an offer for you to get 50% off a no-risk two-week trial when you head over to trynom.com slash iLab. That's trynom.com slash iLab. T-R-Y-N-O-M dot com slash I-L-A-B. Go there, fill out the quick quiz about your dog, and you'll get 50% off your first order. It's trynom.com slash iLab. All right, back. And with number three on the list of the top five Ponzi schemes, we have one that I know personally nothing about, but Derek actually has a personal story. Hope you didn't lose money, Derek. It's Tom Petter's Ponzi scheme at number three. I did not directly lose money, but I do kind of have a personal, like a like a that six degrees of Kevin Bacon type thing from Tom Petters. Okay, okay, so okay. he is from my home state of Minnesota. You don't you know? <laughs> um, so he actually sound like a Scottish drunk in that little <laughs> Minnesota accent <laughs> or Irish. I don't know. He had like a wide, very diversified Ponzi scheme. I would say he defrauded people out of uh, about almost four billion dollars. And what he would do is he would essentially buy inventory and say that he had all these uh, purchase orders for these huge inventories. He owned a company. Do you know the company Finger Hut, Sam? You ever heard of that? No. So it's kind of like, what was the catalog in the airplane? Sky Mall. Sky Mall. Yeah. It was kind of very similar to like what Sky Mall was. You get the catalog and there'd be all kinds of crazy products in there and everything. So he actually acquired that company, Finger Hut, which was like mm -hmm. pretty big. Maybe it was like bigger in the Midwest where I was. So what he did is he would get all these purchase orders for like electronics, and like high value stuff. So like, I don't know, what is this, 2005? So what was a big screen TV then? Like thousands of dollars, right? Now you can get it for like a hundred bucks. But mm -hmm. um, he would get all these purchase orders, say, you know, I need to get 10,000 TVs and electronics and all this stuff. And he would use that to, to raise money um, for investors, but he would actually never buy those items. So um, he did that. He bought Sun Country Airlines, which is still in existence today. The airline actually operated at a loss and he showed that it was profitable every year. So it's just a general, all kinds of shady stuff. He had a ton of real estate and that's where I come in. So when I moved back to Minnesota, I was gone for, I, I had a radio job in Milwaukee. I moved back to Minneapolis and I got this fancy schmancy condo, like high rise tower. That was like the nicest place I'd ever lived in. And I'm sure I was the poorest person that lived there. But um, it was a building that Tom Petters had converted into condos and he owned like 75% of the building. Mm -hmm. So, you know, every building has an homeowners association fee, an HOA fee. Well, here's the thing is I was renting it from the a single owner, but he owned the majority of the units in the, in the building. And when the FBI raided Tom Petter's organization, they seized all his real estate assets as well. And they sat empty for like two or three years before, Ugh. you know, they could do anything with it or sell them off before, you know, while they're doing the trial and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. So in the meantime, the federal government doesn't pay HOA fees. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so no. Everyone else remaining in that building 
had to pay for all those empty units and everyone's HOA like quadrupled oh, like overnight. Oh my gosh, man. So everyone hated Tom Petters there. <laughs> Motherfucker. Dude, right? <laughs> remember when the in 08, when the, the financial collapse happened? And I remember in downtown West Palm Beach, they were selling units in a brand new high rise that were originally selling for 350000 mm -hmm. which doesn't seem like a lot of money in today's prices. Right, that'd be a bargain in 2008, now. that was like a nice, you know, that was a really nice like 2-2. They were selling them for 35,000. In fact, they were trying to sell them so hard at 35,000. They had a massive billboard over like the wind, like three units that said units now for sale 35,000. And I remember looking at that going like, that is so stupid like stupid cheap yeah but but the story in that building was the same that so many people had defaulted that the burden of the hoa was falling on on the remaining people and like hoa fees were like eight hundred dollars a month or something which for like a one bedroom crazy even even today that's high yeah, <laughs> yeah you're like where's the bottom it's like another 50 percent of the people gonna default. like no one knew where the bottom is it's like i can't get you know i'm not gonna buy this place and then like the whole building looking back now those units are probably like seven hundred thousand, and homeowners fees are, are shared across the board but yeah that's uh that's a real possibility and in your situation it's like one you don't even think about but it's a it's certainly a possibility totally i mean i guess the foreclosure is kind of the same thing this one just kind of screwed them extra hard because it wasn't just you know for a couple months and then it gets for or like six months it gets foreclosed this was years like the the federal government was just holding yeah. on to these and they couldn't do anything about it yeah so tom petters and enron there's there's a parallel there right where they both had legitimate business foundations there i mean there was some right. legitimate business practice to them but in the end it was fault it was fraudulent accounting or funny accounting practices right and that's the type of stuff that Sun Country Airlines is still in existence today and it's publicly traded, which I'm not saying anything about their accounting today. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> and that's a challenge is like in a due diligence process of going into these companies, you're never going to figure that out as an individual investor. I don't even think you figure that out as a crowd. Like if you have a crowd investing pool, you, you kind of have to rely on their audited financials and some bigger body. Like in the case of, of like Enron, and I would imagine even Tom Petters is like, the SEC and some of the the like the larger governmental compliance because I don't you're never going to figure that stuff out on yourself. Yeah, so it said he 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 created multiple shell companies to create false invoices and contracts, which made it appear as if real <laughs> transition transactions were taking place. So I guess you're essentially saying that you're buying this inventory from a another company that you actually have that's not a real company. Um, so it, it's yeah. the thing that I find crazy about this is the amount of people that they say knew about it is always so minimal. And I'm like, there's no way this is like hundreds of people. It has to be. Well, when it comes to the, the, the complicated corporate structure and accounting practices, like maybe not because you could be very deep on the inside of a business operationally, but dude, analyzing P and L's even for like a, a two person, you know, small business is not real easy. I mean, there's businesses mm -hmm. that I'm invested in and that I'm even operational in. And I have access to the PL. And every time it comes across my email, I, I look at it for three seconds. I get dizzy and I'm like, just write me like a three bullet summary, you know? Yeah. Like I wouldn't know. I actually wouldn't know if there was fraud going on in that company because the PL and balance sheet are just too complicated, you know? Right. So it is like, I think you could have a larger organization given a larger organization's PL and balance sheet is going to be much more complicated right mm -hmm. so it, it could it could be true like you could be a, a very seasoned business person but not have the ability to dissect a, a PL with scrutiny
Well, I think one of their tactics is, which I'm seeing on Pedders here too, one more thing before we move on to the next one is kind of parallels with Bernie Madoff is they were very charming. You know, they, <laughs> they, um, it says, you know, I remember like Tom Petter's name before all this happened. Like he was kind of like a local celebrity. Like he was rich and successful. It says he hosted lavish parties, events. He donated a lot of money to charities. And, you know, uh, we hear that with people like, I don't know, even like, like scumbags, like Harvey Weinstein and stuff. Like he would go and donate money to like these women's charities while he's doing these horrendous things to women because they, they use their charm and like their sales tactics to, to have a reputation of they're successful. So I trust them. It's, it's kind of a common theme with these guys. Like you gotta, you gotta trust a guy named Tom. It's like, Tom, it's Tom, it's Tom, it's Tom Petters, you know, he's at the local golf club. Yeah, there you go. He sounds like a guy that would be at the local golf club. Yeah. Oh man. All right. So number two, let's move up the list. We've got the next one again, somebody, and I hope this is a name that no one's familiar with. So we can shed some light on another big Ponzi scheme. We're talking $7 billion, not small change. That's Alan Stanford's. Yeah, so Alan Stanford, I actually didn't know a lot about, but he had a whole new spin on how to do this as well. So he mm -hmm. had a, a company called Stanford Financial Group, and he was based out of Houston, Texas. So what Stanford did was he offered investors certificates of deposits, you know, we call them CDs, that promised high returns, often in excess of what other financial institutions were offering. Stanford claimed that these CDs were backed by safe and secure investments, such as real estate and assets. So, you know, you go to your local bank, you get your seat, your two-year CD, and it pays one and a half percent. You're like, eh, I don't know about that. You go to Alan mm -hmm. Stanford and he's paying, you know, 6%, which sounds amazing. But in reality... None of these CDs were backed by any investments that existed at all. Or if they were, there was nowhere near the actual value that he claimed those investments were worth. It's seven billion. And again, when what year did this one get called out? Two thousand and nine. Ah, oh, magical year that was. <laughs> a lot of fraudsters running for the hills. Uh, he would also falsify documents to make it appear as if these investments were legitimate. And he also used a network of offshore bank accounts and shell companies to hide the investments. Uh, I'm sorry, the funds from his investors. This one was a little different because he kept a lot of the money for himself. Like, uh, and, and it's it seems like a lot of these were given back to the investors, but uh, the majority of this guy's money, he's like, no, that's coming back with me. <laughs> So what happened to Mr. Allen Stanford in the end? Mr. Robert Allen Stanford is a convicted felon serving in federal prison right now. How long do you think his sentence is, Sam? Oh, when I hear federal prison, I think of like some rosy resort with softball fields and tennis courts and a musical theater and all this. Shit. Like, tell me he's someplace like more like Brooklyn Max or something. Well, the <laughs> name of the town that it's in sounds horrible but I can't guarantee that the, the prison is. Wait, 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 wait. Is it in Mississippi? It is not. It's close. It's in Texas. Mexia, okay. Texas. No, there's often like, that's where some of the nice like white collar prisons are. I only know this because my buddy who started the Bitcoin exchange oh, and yeah. served five years or got sentenced with five years, served three and a half, went to a place in Minnesota or it's not Minnesota, Mi Mississippi. <laughs> and it was like, he was freaking out because it was like this really small town. I mean, there was nothing there except a prison. He's like, they're sending me to Mississippi. I can't, you know, I thought it'd be in Florida. He got there and like two weeks into it, he's like, dude, if you could like check into this place for a year, I would recommend it to everybody. Just go off the grid, man. Behind <laughs> bars. Play softball every day. You know, he's got like a little job on on at the factory. There's no gates. There's no walls. There's no barbed wire. You this could, could leave. be one of those. You could, 
could literally walk off. I'm not finding yeah. much information on this one. And I feel like they don't want to show the cozy ones on Google. <laughs> well, anyways, it sucks that you're in there for the rest of your life, but he's still there though. So he's my, 70. Yeah. Let me do the math. 73 years old and he's serving a 110 year federal sentence. So unless we come up with the uh, cure to live forever, <laughs> he's <laughs> probably on there. the anti-aging supplement, right? <laughs> <laughs> Double up. All right. So Alan's playing softball. It sounds like he's playing softball and, uh, in the local league. I guess the only reason we didn't really hear about that, and I guess a lot of listeners may have, but the only reason that that we probably haven't heard of that is because even though it's $7 billion, which is just an astronomical sum of money to take from investors, he went down the same year that the number one Ponzi scheme of all time went down. And that was Mr. Madoff, which also was blown up in 2009. And I'm, I'm guessing got the lion's share of the media attention. I mean, it has to, though, because this was 10 times the next Ponzi scheme, $65 billion for Bernie Madoff. And the biggest hedge fund of the time, uh, that biggest hedge fund ever, right? Unknowingly, though, I don't I don't think it, it was it was weird because he had he had two segments of his business. If, if you watch the series, he uh, it was in a famous building in New York called uh, the Lipstick Building. And on mm -hmm. the top floors, he would have his actual legitimate investment firm, which did pretty well, which is why I don't understand that he needed to start a whole separate arm of the business and oh, on the brother. 17th floor. <laughs> oh, brother, let me bring this back to philosophy because this was the most aha, like all, like just total. When I was watching this, you know, I, I went into this deep dive of philosophy the last couple of years and almost all philosophy kind of points to the good and bad within you runs straight down the center point of your heart, you know, and like it's man and woman's constant struggle through life to always be siding with that. But like we're born with that kind of natural instinct. You know, if you look through it, you can just compare it in your own life. Like where's the good? Where's the bad? Like we're always trying to fight for the good, but the, the, the bad stuff creeps up quite a bit. Right. And if you read enough philosophy, it's like everyone's kind of alluding to that fact, if not even stating it straight up. And they look at look at these Ponzi schemes. And I think one of the things that we've talked about but it's like, there's often a very good element to these people. And then there's like the, the bad stuff, right? With like Madoff. It seems like they all start off as legitimate and slowly yeah. it just gets out of control. It gets out of control. And I think I don't think they know how to wind it up. But the people that were close to him or working for him directly, they're always like, he was the most generous person. He was taking mm -hmm. care of me and the, my family, always gave us big bonuses, was always asking how we were doing, showed like a lot of personal care. A lot of times they're often giving very big donors to charity. But when I look at Madoff and I think of that line in philosophy, like the good and evil often runs straight down the center point of our hearts. It's like, holy shit, that was literal in Madoff's sense where he had one floor that was totally legitimate oh, yeah. <laughs> business practice and was like this pristine office that was like, you know, everyone is just very, very well dressed and everything was like so um, presentable. You could take it in the sense also of like even like a, a biblical, like uh, the top floor was the legitimate. That's heaven. And then you got hell down uh -huh. below hanging out on the yep. 17th floor. So, yeah, there's all kinds of parallels here. Always teetering between. Right. Yeah. And and yeah. So in Madoff's case, it was literal. And then the bottom floor, if you guys watched the series, was like this disgusting cardboard box, no shelves. Like it was just everything was in disarray. People were yep. in there smoking cigarettes and, and running this massive scale scam. And like, it would be like an office. Like if you walked in there and you said, I'm going to invest with Bernie Madoff, if his office that he presented to you was that bottom floor, you would never put a dollar right. in with this guy. 
Yeah. But, but also he didn't need it. Right. You know, he didn't need that. He had a legitimate business. He was doing well. He didn't need it to run this scam. And, um, but like from a psychology standpoint, you can kind of, you can kind of understand it. I mean, I'm not, not empathetic to him, but I, no. I can kind of understand it from a, a, a psychology standpoint. Well, speaking of empathy, he didn't show any empathy when he was arrested. He was just kind of like, yeah, I did it is what it is. Yeah. You know? That was, that was a weird, that was a weird thing. I mean, that's where you kind of cross into the border, like the, the realm of psychopath. Because I think most people that act poorly, they still know they act poorly and they even quietly ask for forgiveness. But on that level, to have destroyed so many people's lives and not show any remorse, that's that's psychopathic, you know? Yeah, it was it was like if he ever even had those feelings, he dealt with them a long, long time ago and he was fine with uh, screwing people over. Yeah. One thing I can't really figure out is like where all the money went with Madoff. So that's what I want to ask you, too. So, um, well, let's go through uh, the other ones quick. Um, I would just want to go with what they took and what they recovered and we'll talk about Madoff. Perfect. So Enron actually lost investors seventy four billion dollars in total and that's because investors invested 74 billion and then Enron stock price went to zero yeah and total recovered which is when they had to sell all their other assets and everything which i would think with a big public company like that probably went back to the banks and not the individual investors uh seven mm. billion so less than 10 percent of that was recovered and then you move on to tom petters he took 3.7 billion and recovered from him was about 722 million so what 20 okay. percent of that uh this is stinging as you're telling me these stats i'm thinking of mount gox oh yeah you're about 10%. that too 10 percent. 10 percent. 10 percent Alan Stanford stole seven billion dollars, one point two back. So yeah, we're in that ten to twenty percent range. Mm. Bernie sixty five, like we said, uh, total recovered that they were able to get back was fourteen point three billion. Wow, okay, that's more than I thought. Pretty good chunk of it, I think, because it was so highly publicized. But also one thing I found interesting, which they did bring up in the um, the Netflix documentary, mm -hmm. was this firm which was headed by Irving Picard who was tasked with, you know, finding all this money and distributing to it. And the whole system was just ridiculously complicated for who gets what. Why does yeah. why does Sam deserve more money than me type deals mm -hmm. and shady side deals? But that firm alone almost could be argued they were running their own little Ponzi scheme on <laughs> this money. They collected $1.7 billion in fees to just, collect this money. I just can't even fathom. Like, And they were billing that. It wasn't like, oh, okay, yep. we're just going to take a commission on what we collect. It was like, no, we're going to send you an invoice each month. Yeah. And that those invoices totaled <laughs> $1.7 billion. What's that each month? You're that's is that a hundred that's basically a hundred million each month that they're invoicing for. Yeah, it's like they saw that there's all this money out there. And if we take this giant sum of money, it's still just a fraction of that money anyway. So if they're gonna allow it, well, let's let's fee it up. <laughs> Doesn't the SEC have some type of you know bankruptcy committee that it would be in charge of doing this like pro bono? Especially because it was the SEC's fuck up, let's be honest. True, because they had multiple chances to, to catch they this. Multiple, they had so many chances. I mean, there was people ringing the bells all the time. They had the SEC in the office with Madoff on multiple occasions. They just didn't ask questions. Like they didn't ask the questions because Madoff just charmed them, took them to, you know, get them champagne and flirted with them. And it sounds like a lot of these victims were saying that the fees were excessive by this uh, Picard firm yeah. called Baker Hosteller. Baker Hosteller. And they had argued that, you know, they had tried to 
take legal action. And then there was actually other victims that were defending their work and saying they did such a good job, which I feel like, well, if certain people got a bigger percentage than the other people, they're obviously yeah. going to say, yeah, you did a great job. I mean, on, on a percentage basis, it seems totally fine, right? If 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 you, let's say you collect- it's About 10%, yeah, a little bit over 10%. You're, you're taking a dollar for every 17 you collect. That that seems reasonable because let's be fair, like they had a tough ass job. Yeah. And part of that job was going to everyone who was an investor of Madoff, they got paid out. And most of these investors didn't know they did anything wrong. They didn't know they were invested in a scam. They had to go to every one of those investors and basically say, we're going to take everything. We're going to take your life. You have to give us everything back. If you got paid out 500,000, you have to give us that 500,000 back. And if you can't come up with it, we're going to we're going to take over your house. We're going to take over your car. We're going to take your whole life and soul and we're going to liquidate it. And that's what they had to do in a lot of cases. And that yep. is tough ass work. I mean, they just, they, you know, a lot of people invested, say 500,000 or a million dollars with Madoff. That was a hundred percent. They were a hundred percent invested. They weren't Which is wild too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And some of these people had to liquidate everything. They got, you know, their money out, but then they had to liquidate everything, and give it back. I mean, that's the argument was like, you know, you might not have known about this, but you might have known about it because there was the biggest settlement out of that. Over half the money collected was from a guy called uh, Jeffrey Pickhower. Do you remember that story? Mm -hmm. So he collected over $7 billion in profits from Madoff. And it, there's pretty solid evidence that he knew what was going on. And he kind of had uh, Madoff, you know, over the table saying, you're going to pay me out my money because I know what's going on. So just keep that coming in. They actually had his estate after he passed away, luckily, from a heart attack the next year before they could mm -hmm. take any action from him. They had to pay out $7.2 billion. Is Well, that, one of the also common themes that you see with a lot of these investments is people didn't really understand what these companies were doing, how they were making money. But they got that glossy statement at the end of each month and they thought, I'm not going to ask questions. It wasn't glossy. It was dot well, matrix printer paper. <laughs> <laughs> not glossy, but but green. We'll say that. Not okay, glossy, yes, yes. but green. The number's going in the right direction. And in a lot of cases, when people would question Madoff, he would just say, look, if you have these questions, you shouldn't be invested with me and I'll give you all your money back right now. Right. Oh. Well, what happens then? Everyone just shuts up. Yeah, they like, go, oh, okay. well, I mean, if um, he's if he's offering you know, the money back, they most of the time they probably didn't take him up on that. But if, if, if you yep. put the offer out there, they're like, oh, well, okay, maybe he's legitimate. Well, also people don't, don't walk away from 15 to 20% a year. I mean, yeah. it's- it's very difficult to find those type of gains consistently. And especially like Madoff was doing this for years. This wasn't like a, a two year pump and dump. I think it was operating for like at least 10 years before everything imploded. So people had some type of established relationship with them where they were making, you know, what seemed like legitimate returns month over month. And let's let's give a little bit of face <laughs> to his method, which was simple. Inner circle face to face. No, no, no. Well, no, no. Beyond that. The actual method of how he was reporting trades. Oh, sure. Yeah, was yeah. genius. Mm -hmm. It was so simple. It was like the most simple thing you could possibly come up with, but absolutely genius. And that was instead of doing a trade today and papering it, like doing a legitimate trade today and papering it, you wait until the day after. And then you can see which trades, you, you know, which trades would have made money, right? Yep. So what they did is instead of like doing legitimate trades day of, they did the trades the day after. So, you know, you wait for, for today to end and then you see what trades would have worked. 
And then you paper those trades and then you send out those trades in a statement each month to investors. They're like, oh yeah, they bought Apple on today and they sold it on you know the day after. And it, you can bat a hundred percent that way, right? But as an investor receiving the statement, they're like, oh, these guys are genius, man. They bought it on the 17th, sold it on the 18th. Yeah, <laughs> Apple was up 3% on the, on the 17th. It, it's so simple, but but literally it's like, it's genius. And, and they, it's real. They it's using state. real data that is verifiable. So if you're like, okay, they held it for this, bought it here, sold it here. You go to verify that, you know, that stock actually did that. Every source is telling you that's what happened. So And, and, and really like, how would you bust, even if that was happening today in some of our investments, mm -hmm. how would you, how would you bust that? How would you as an individual retail investor figure that out? You wouldn't. Yeah. You could, you just create fraudulent documents and you say they're yeah. from this software or whatever. There's really no Edit way to a prove PDF. it. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think all that speaks to like, before we go into a summary, I mean, that's the perfect point to just say like, you know, and strategically, that's why I'm so diversified is because I know at some point, some of these are, are going to A, go bust, something's going to be a scam of some sort. And I tried not to have too many, too, too much in, in any basket. Now, Warren Buffett, on the other hand, if you want to take a, a different strategy says, have all your eggs in just a couple baskets, but know those baskets and watch those baskets really closely. And that would be more of like the play to say, all right, instead of being diversified across 60 accounts, just go in two or three, but have a lot of trust in those. And that might be mm -hmm. like Vanguard. That might be some big property fund that's got, you know, 30 year track record. It might be in just a couple stocks that have long, long history, like Apple, et cetera. So, yeah. So, I'm in the same boat as you, Sam. I'm like mm -hmm. crazy hyper diversified, got money all over the place, but I'm going to blame it on one thing mm -hmm. the Invest Like a Boss podcast. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> we talk about things and we get excited. And but we you put could money blame in. it. You could blame it or you could thank it, right? I, I mean, exactly, yes. If, if you if you lost 30% in one investment because you, you weren't diversified, you know, you'll be thanking your diversified, you know, strategy. So, I'm, I'm sticking with it. I'm sticking with it. I feel much, much better. I enjoy it. And I think, you know, the average listener, had they invested a little bit in everything we've talked about, they'd be way better off than any Ponzi scheme. <laughs> <laughs> than being all in on, on Tom Petters. <laughs> exactly. So it's a good thing. Yeah. Well, um, well I think, but, but it, it does show you like, it's not just, I always think the alternative investments are the riskiest. That's where in my portfolio, I'm like, that's mm -hmm. a lot of, so I try not to keep more than 2% in any alternative, but the alternatives are beautiful. They're fun. Yeah. In a market like this, the only thing that's up for me are my alternatives. It's my wine investment. It's my peer to peer loans. It's, you know, it, it's a lot of actually almost all of my alternatives are up right now. So when the market's going sideways, they bring you a lot of comfort, but I still think that that's where a lot of the risk is. But on the other hand, you know, you can have these publicly traded stocks go completely bust and wrong. I just had a REIT that's gone bust. A, a REIT that that's prop that's a property investment. Right. I just lost one hundred and fifty thousand on that man, and that's where you would put more of like that's my safe bucket, right? So you can't bet too strongly on anything, but it does feel good like in a market that's that's going down, like to not have everything in Vanguard. Yeah. You know, to have some things that are winning. And I've had things go bust too, and it's like it's such a small percentage that it's it's annoying to see. But it's like, mm, I'm not glad I invested in them, but it's it's yeah. fun to see the, the failures too and kind of 
learn from that. Yes, have some fun with it. Do the do the alternative stuff, the the moonshot potential stuff, you know, and don't mm-hmm. be surprised when it goes to zero because more often times than not, it does. <laughs> but we've always preached that, you know, the principles uh, in the basics that your bulk of your money should be in, in those safer investments. But have some fun. Dip into this other stuff. Have those lottery tickets. Uh, we're going to have a lot more to talk about the Madoff. Again, if you haven't checked out the series, Derek, what's it called again? I forgot. Bernie Madoff, the Monster of Wall Street on Netflix. Monster of Wall Street. Check it out. We're going to have more to talk about on an upcoming episode where we're going to investigate financial crimes, some of the new schemes to look out for. Obviously, there's a lot to, to talk about with cryptocurrencies uh, and where they sit with this, this concept and definition of Ponzi scheme. Yeah, I think this episode made me a little bit more thoughtful of investments that I'm in and looking at. And I think it's a great reminder for everyone just to take caution when they're getting into new investments and also to go back through their portfolio now with a little bit more scrutiny, because this is that time. If you think most of these Ponzi schemes were busted up in the year 2009, we're in similar times now. And every day that we go by in the sideways sideways market with rising interest rates, you know, there's there's more and more shakeups. So take a look at your portfolio, review it with some scrutiny and think about what might make sense to de-risk a little bit. That's a good plan. And if any of you bosses out there have an investment that maybe you're concerned about or any other matter, there's chances are there's someone else out there that has invested with them as well. So share what you're thinking in the boss lounge. That's our Facebook page. You can go to investlikeaboss.com quick join the boss lounge and also in Patreon, which is kind of our paid tier for some of our fans that want extra content like Sam and I are about to record right after this. You get special mm-hmm. little bonus episodes. Our full quarterly updates are in there. Those are always fun. And there's we're posting in there at least a few times a week. There's so much extra stuff that you can access and it's just $5 a month. So if you'd like to show your support for the show that way, we really appreciate it. But if you don't want to pay money, we're totally cool with that. The only thing we ask for that is you leave us reviews. So whether you're listening Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whatever it may be, five-star reviews really help our show grow. And we can get these amazing guests like we've been having this year. I mean, 2023 so far has been some awesome guests. And it just really helps mm. when we can share that you guys are interacting with our show and giving us good ratings and legitimizing that our show is actually worth a listen to these potential guests. So if you could do that, we really appreciate it. Five-star reviews or check out Patreon at investlikeaboss.com. Yep. And at the beginning of this episode, I know we talked about or we teased rather discussing the Ponzi, I'll call it a Ponzi scheme, property investment that I got involved in down here in Phuket. I just posted something in the boss lounge about that. Let's save the commentary for that for the next episode that we're going to we're going to have um, on Ponzi scheme topic. I think we covered a lot here, but that is some good material and another uh, cautionary tale for our listeners. Well, you're leaving me on edge too, Sam, because I don't even know about this. So I guess we all have something (laughs) to look forward to in the next episode. We'll see you bosses next week. Thanks for listening to the Best Like a Boss podcast. Join our mailing list at investlikeaboss.com to get exclusive access to our insider investment portfolios and our private members forum. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends and leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps more than you know. See you guys next week.